Now getting you set for everything Cardinals. This second game is a Cardinal. Three home runs. This is the Redbird Report Show with Danny Mac. Out there. On 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Jim Butler, the Kia powerhouse. Shop JimButlerKia.com. Welcome into the Redbird Report. I'm Dan McLaughlin, and we do this every Monday on 101 ESPN. Coming up, you'll hear from Bob Kendrick. And Bob is the man that runs the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. This is a remarkable visit with a man that has dedicated his life to the Negro Leagues. And it's a walk down history. It's a reminder of what our country used to be. And it's also a reminder of what our country still is. And it's a, a guy that has dedicated his life to remembering baseball and also teaching us about the game. So Bob Kendrick is coming up. And also, I'll visit with Brad Thompson. Had Brad Thompson on the show today. Scoops with Danny Mack, which is heard daily at 10 o'clock. And we'll talk about uh, what baseball could look like in 2020. Baseball on your television and baseball on the field with no fans in the stands and how tough that may be for the players of 2020. So this is the Redbird Report. Sit back. Enjoy it. Should be fun. Next hour dedicated to Major League Baseball and the St. Louis Cardinals on 101 ESPN. We are right back to it. More Cardinals talk right now. This is the Redbird Report with Danny Mac on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Jim Butler Kia. Welcome back to 101 ESPN. Now, Major League Baseball will be hosting a lot of different events throughout the Major League Baseball season to honor the Negro Leagues. And the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is run by Bob Kendrick, who joins me on 101 ESPN. The Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is run in Kansas City. It is one of the most tremendous places you can go to learn about the Negro Leagues and also about the history of our country. And Bob joins me on 101, and it's just an easy drive right across the state. You can make a day trip, take your family, uh, take uh, your children, go there, learn about the Negro Leagues, learn about the history of our country. And, and Bob, is it fair to say that this place, when you walk through the doors, I, I describe it as magical. I've been there so many different times. I learn something new every time I'm there, but is the best way to describe it, is it fair to call it magical? I think it's an outstanding way to describe it. I still have that feeling, and I've come here every single day for the better part, and it is something very special. And you feel it when you walk into the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. How many years for you now? Count years professionally, I started in 1998 as the museum's first director of marketing, but my involvement goes back to 1993 as a volunteer with this organization. And, and it's, it's exploded, obviously. Oh, it has. It's grown leaps and bounds since the time that it was organized in a little one-room office uh, in 1990. And, and, of course, the recognition and the awareness of this history in the museum as a caretaker of that history has grown enormously since that time. It's a big responsibility, isn't it? Well, it is because you understand that you are basically carrying a piece of baseball and Americana that was really going to die. See, this history was going to go extinct when that last Negro League left the face of this earth. We cannot allow that to happen. So, yeah, it's a daunting task to know that you've got a piece of history in your hands that if you don't save it, there's a good likelihood 
that it will fall by the wayside. It will die when that last Negro Leaguer passes away. We don't want that to happen. I tell our guests all the time, Dan, that the Negro Leagues Museum doesn't need to survive. It has to survive. Absolutely. So that we don't lose this precious piece of baseball and Americana. And the more majority of people who come here, they don't really know the full depth, the breadth, the scope, the magnitude of what this history represented both on and off the field. I do think the work that we've done now over the past 28 years has certainly elevated the consciousness of those. And so they come in expecting to meet some pretty good baseball players. And, of course, you're going to leave not being disappointed. You're going to meet some of the greatest baseball players to ever put on a baseball uniform. Absolutely. But by the time you walk away from this experience, I truly believe that you walk away with an even greater appreciation and understanding of just how great this country really is. How did it all start? Right here in Kansas City, 1920, yeah. as an organized Negro League. Now, black folks been playing baseball since the – late 1800s some will say even as far back as slavery but in an organized fashion the negro leagues organized right here in kansas city 1920 right around the corner from where we operate the old Pasell ymca the building still stands it's and, unbelievable yeah andrew rube foster the architect led a contingent of eight independent black baseball team owners into kansas city they met at the old Pasell ymca out of that meeting came the birth of the Negro National League, the first successful organized black baseball league. And then, of course, the Negro Leagues would go on to operate in this country remarkably for 40 years, from 1920 until 1960. People don't realize that. No, no, because even if you understood that there was a Negro Leagues, I think the moral majority would say, well, Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier right. in 1947. So if there was a Negro Leagues, surely it ended in and around that time. Well, the leagues would go on to operate another 13 years after Jackie. Why? Because it took Major League Baseball 12 years sure. before every Major League team had at least one black baseball player. The Boston Red Sox would become the last team to integrate in 1959 when they signed Pumpsy Green. And that would complete the integration cycle by 1960, the Negro League ceased operations because by then the best young black stars had moved into the major leagues or into their minor league system, and there was no replenishing system. So the leagues would dissolve. Where would they play, and how would they originate the teams? How did that all come about? Well, in 1920, eight teams made up the Negro National League, including the St. Louis Giants, right? one of the original members. And then the St. Louis Giants would become the great St. Louis Stars. So the city of St. Louis certainly has had its representation as it relates to black baseball history and rich black baseball history because you had some superstar Negro League players that called St. Louis home, including the great Cool Papa Bell and Willie Wells and Mule Suttles. These are all Hall of Famers that played there for the St. Louis Stars. And so, yeah, St. Louis has certainly seen its fair share of great baseball being played there from a black baseball perspective. But these were independent black baseball teams that came into the fold. So when Rube organized the Negro Leagues in 1920, he organized the Negro National League. Well, in 1923, a guy named Ed Bolden formed a rival league known as the Eastern Colored League. 1924, your very first Negro Leagues World Series, the Kansas City Monarchs against the Hilldale Daisies out of Darby, Pennsylvania. And the Monarchs would actually win that inaugural World Series led by the great Hall of Famer Wilbur Bullet Joe Rogan. 
You're know? like a walking encyclopedia. Well, you're- it's fun, though, man. You know, Dad, I considered myself to be a baseball fan. And, and I am a baseball fan. And was just fascinated by this other chapter of baseball history that I didn't know anything about when I got involved with the museum going back to 1993. And I just fell in love with the story. I fell in love with the athletes who made this story. And I just wanted to learn as much as I possibly could. I think I became almost a little self-absorbed with this wanting to know as much as I could. And then I didn't want to keep it to myself. Yeah. I wanted to share it with other folks. And, of course, I met Buck O'Neill for the first time in 1993. And I tell people all the time, once you met Buck and you were <laughs> bitten by the Buck bug, it was a wrap. I just wanted to be on Buck's team. And, and so I was so blessed to spend so many years with him, and and I got to meet so many of these former Negro League players, the guys who really played in the heart and soul of the Negro Leagues, 30s and 40s, and those guys are virtually all gone now. Right. Yeah. With the museum, um, how did you find the artifacts, the pictures, <laughs> the gloves, the uniforms? Oh, man, I tell you I can't what. imagine what that was like. Well, it was a challenge, and we're so fortunate because I'd say 95% of the things that you see on display at the Negro Leagues Museum came from the players and or their families. It's only been over the last decade or so that we've started attempting to compete for memorabilia. I tell people all the time, we've almost become our own worst enemy. The more we're popularizing the story, we're driving the market for these artifacts to the point that makes it difficult for us to compete to go get them. Now, these things fetch a hefty price tag virtually every time that they come up for, you know, when they do come up to be sold and that kind of thing. And so we have to be very prudent. We have to kind of be very smart about the things that we try to go get because we just simply don't have the budgets to go out sure. and purchase a lot of this stuff. But fortunately, many of the players' families or and or the players donated some of their things. I tell people all the time, though, I wish this museum had been born 25, 30 years before. Oh, man. We would have so much more stuff. But, you know, the thing that drives this museum is not the stuff. It's the story. Yeah. And that story had escaped the pages of American history books. So countless generations of us went through our own formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball history, but in American history. And that's the powerful and compelling story of the Negro Leagues. When you, um, well, let's let's talk about this. I, I always tell our fans, if you're going to make the trek from St. Louis to Kansas City, you have to stop by the museum because it's a it's an unbelievable place. You're going to teach your children. You're going to learn. Um, I can't do it justice. So if I was to get a ticket yes, and I'm walking through that museum, what am I going to get, Bob? Oh, you're going to get an amazing experience. And it's an experience that is obviously anchored in the ugliness of American segregation. Horrible chapter in this country's history. But that's not the story here. Now, the story here is out of segregation. Rose is wonderful story of triumph and conquest. And it's all based on one small, simple principle. You won't let me play with you. Then I'll just create a league of my own, the Negro Leagues. And when you stop to think about that, that is the American way. So even though America was trying to prevent them from sharing in the joys of her so-called national pastime, it was the American spirit that allowed them to persevere and prevail. And I think that is the spirit that drives this story. So if you come here expecting to be introduced to a sad, somber story, 
No, you got the wrong place. No, this is a celebration. It is the celebration, Dan, of the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. So you're going to be introduced to an amazing story of baseball and Americana. And then, of course, you're going to meet some pretty good doggone athletes at the same time. (laughs) You know, they could play. They really could play. And their contemporaries knew that they could play. It was just the social conditions of our time and fear that kept these athletes from playing in the major leagues. So, of course... The, for the African-American and Hispanic ball player, the Negro Leagues provided a place for them to showcase their world-class playing abilities. And so you basically take a nostalgic journey back in time. And so you get to see how our country was, but you also get to see how our country unfolded and really started to live out this greatness that we know about America. And I just think the Negro Leagues, the story of that, really embodies that American spirit. I love the fact that you say it's it's a, a story. Um, and yes, it's a horrible chapter in our, our country. But you come away saying, we're going to make it positive too. Oh, absolutely. That's what that's, I love, Bob. That's and that premise. was Buck O'Neill and that's oh, you. Oh, absolutely. And that's the premise to this story. I think sometimes people expect sadness. But when you walk through that museum, you don't see sadness. No. You see these beautiful people dressed immaculately going to a ball game. You see the pride that emanated from the player's face as they were getting to the opportunity to play the game that they love. Now, did they like some of the things that happened to them as they traveled the highways and byways of this country? Of course not. There would be occasions, Dan, when they could go into a town, fill up the ballpark, yet not get a meal from the same fans who had just cheered them or not have a place to stay. Terrible. So they would have to sleep on the bus and eat their peanut butter and crackers until they could find a place that would provide basic services for them. But they never allowed that to kill their love of the game. So if I got to sleep on the bus, eat my peanut butter and crackers, I'm going to keep playing ball. And that's the prevailing spirit here. And, and so they love this game. And they were good at this game. And because the passion, because of the passion that they had for our sport, they not only changed our game, they changed our country. And, and that comes across so triumphantly when you visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. There's still a handful of Negro League baseball players that are alive. Yes. yes. Do they reach out to you all the time? Yeah, no, we still stay in communication. We keep a list of those, and, you know, we try to keep up with those. And every now and then a guy surfaces that we didn't know about. And then, unfortunately, the flip side of that, the guy passes away that we don't always know about. And so, you know, when we built this museum back in 1990, we realized that we were literally in a race against time that the people who made this story were all going to die. Not a matter of fact, not a matter of if, but when. Right. Uh, so you knew it was a race of time, a race against time, and every time you lose one, you lose a piece of that history. That window closes a little bit more, and it does put a little added pressure on the museum to make sure that we document and substantiate as much of this history as we possibly can while we still have those living members. But not only are you going to lose the people who played in these leagues, you're going to lose the people who saw them play. Absolutely. Yeah, and and they too can attest to what these stories are. You know, I love when, when the people from that era come here to the museum and you can see these cascades of memory coming back. Yeah, they're remembering what they wore to the game, where they went, what club they went to after the game. (laughs) So even though we were living in a segregated society, Negro Leagues baseball brought joy to so many. Absolutely. Yeah, to so many. Mm -hmm. That's Bob Kendrick. And when we come back, we'll continue our discussion and we'll get into 
the best hitters and some of the names that you know and, and have heard about, the best pitchers and, and best players and what St. Louis, their role in the Negro Leagues has meant over the years. It's a special conversation. I hope you're enjoying it. Bob Kendrick from the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is my guest on 101 ESPN. We are right back to it. More Cardinals talk right now. This is the Redbird Report with Danny Mac on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Jim Butler Kia. This is 101 ESPN, and let's continue our conversation with Bob Kendrick of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. And, Bob, I wanted to get into some of the top players that uh, are featured in the Negro Leagues and also the role of St. Louis uh, in the Negro Leagues and really appreciate your time. And I guess when you talk about the best hitters, certainly you you, you got to start with a guy that uh, many people consider one of the greatest power hitters, if not the greatest power hitter ever. Another, you know, player that uh, doesn't matter if it was in the Negro Leagues or Major League Baseball. And it's, what do you think? It's got to be Josh Gibson. I, I, I'd have to go Josh. Okay. I have to go Josh because when you look at what Josh did and he was doing it as a catcher, this incredible combination of power and average. See, sometimes you get lost in the power right. that we forget that Gibson was a great hitter. Lifetime batting average of three fifty four. See, and I would have messed that up. Yeah, I always think the power. Yeah, and in head-to-head competition against major leaguers in countless exhibition games, hit over four twenty. Wow. To go with that big bat. So he wasn't just a big bat, and he didn't strike out a lot. No, Josh was that kind of hitter who might strike out 20, 25 times in a season. Buck O'Neill would describe him in this way, and if you can envision this, Josh Gibson had the eyes of Ted Williams and the power of Babe Ruth rolled into one dynamic package. His outs were loud Loud outs. outs. Yeah, as Buck would say, the third baseman and the shortstop were damn near in left field when Gibson <laughs> came up there because you could get killed. They basically said, Josh, if you want to bunt it, Go right, Go right ahead. ahead. We'll let you have it. <laughs> Best pitcher, Satchel? You know, there were a lot of great pitchers in the Negro Leagues. There's only one Satchel Page. Right. And, and for me, yeah, there are guys whose stuff may have been just as good. Nobody was better, though. And, but when you talk about the complete package, when you talk about longevity, great stuff, charisma, there's only one Satchel Page. Absolutely. Yeah, I was just sharing here recently. This week marks the anniversary of him playing in St. Louis for the St. Louis Browns. And he pitches a 12-inning, one-to-nothing shutout over the Detroit Tigers. Dan, he was supposed to be 46 years old at that time. <laughs> right. If you believe that he was born in 1906, which I absolutely do not believe. Right. He was more closer to 52, 56 than he was 46 at that time. 12-inning, one-to-nothing shutout. He struck out nine, gave up seven hits, and the most remarkable, uh, surprising on this stat line, he walked two people. Satchel rarely ever walked anybody, so they likely were intentional walks in in that game at age 46. It's incredible. Well, he makes his two All-Star games as a member of the St. Louis Browns. Right. Yeah, he's named the two All-Star teams well into his 40s, with St. Louis Browns. How old do you think he really was? Most believe he was at least 10 years older than he claimed. Yeah. Yeah, at least 10. 
and, and you can rest assured they were at least no, you know no less than five years older than what he claimed, but most believe he was at least 10. And of course, Satchel being the savvy businessman that he was, he played that whole age sure. thing up to the hilt. He milked it for everything he could get out of it, and, and it, it added to the lore and legend of this great ball player. But I can tell you now, nobody pitched that baseball any better than Satchel. There may have been some that were as good. Nobody was better than Satchel Page. Cool Papa Bell. Uh, we, you know, so many of our fans in St. Louis going to be listening to Absolutely. this. Absolutely. So give me an idea of what this guy was like and how good he was. Well, number one, they tell me they got a street there in St. Louis that's named for him, and I believe the speed limit on that street and probably 30, 35 miles per hour, that's too slow. <laughs> that's too slow. They should have had a section of the freeway named for Cool Papa Bell. You know, beyond, beyond having the greatest nickname, I believe, yeah. in baseball history, Cool Papa was outstanding. He's one of the stars of the Negro Leagues, and he's also one of those transcending stars. Yeah. That name went mainstream, and you know, you knew that name, Cool and Satchel and Josh. He was everything that they said he was, and then some. He came to St. Louis as a pitcher, and as fate would have it, he hurt his arm. And when he hurt his arm, they moved him to the outfield, and the rest is history. He used that blazing speed to run down everything in the outfield. Didn't have a great throwing arm because he had hurt his arm, but he had a very quick release. And because of the great speed, he could play so shallow that you couldn't bloop it in front of him. And unless you hit it over on a rope, you couldn't get it over his head. You know, he was a switch hitter, but primarily batted off that left side. So he's running out of the box. Yeah. And, and so the, the stories of his speed are, are just legendary. And this is the honest to God's truth. Cool Papa Bell twice scored from first base on a bunt in exhibition games against Major League All-Stars. Yeah, and one time it was Satchel Paige who dropped the bunt. Is that right? Well, Cool just never stopped running. Yeah. And so the Major Leaguers really hadn't seen this before, and so the pitcher didn't back up home plate in time. Couldn't get there before before Cool got in. By the time the catcher and the third baseman converged to field the ball, third baseman got it, threw the ball to first base. Cool was rounding third. He it's beat incredible. the pitcher easily. It's incredible. Yeah. But Buck O'Neill said the difference between Cool Papa Bell and the other fast guys was his uncanny and amazing ability to cut that bag on the inside where most guys got to take that big round and turn. Sure. He says Cool is on the inside of the bag. And Dan Buck said that Cool would be so low to the ground that he could literally smack the bag with his hand and not fall low. It's incredible. It is incredible. It, it, it is physics-defying is what it is. Yes. Yeah, but again, I think every now and then somebody comes along and they're born to do what they do. Satchel was born to pitch that ball. Cool was given a little something that the rest of us just didn't have. You know what I mean? And, and so he was he was special. Yeah, all those guys that you just named were special. How many of the current major leaguers come by? We're getting more and more. We're getting more and more they to my here. delight. To my absolute delight. Because it used to be that I would have to try to call the teams. Yes. And say, guys, we're in town. Why don't you come on by? I want to extend this invitation for you to come by. But now more and more guys are calling me saying, hey, I got guys who want to come by the museum. Can you be there to meet them? And I'm, the answer is yes. They were blown away. Yeah. Yeah, they were blown away. They were blown away by the circumstances in which these men had to play this game. Young kids don't even know. They, no, they can't fathom an America that was divided by color. Right. Yeah, they may experience racism in their life, but they won't experience segregation. And, and so, yes, yeah, segregation through the eyes of young people are summarized quite simply. That was dumb. 
And they're right. It was dumb, but that was the way that our country was. And we've continually and perpetually evolved from that, even though we still got work to do. We still have a lot of work to do in this country as it relates to race relations. And if they're going to be asked to kind of carry that mantle, then they have to at least have some understanding that life hadn't always been as good as it is today for some of the citizens. So you can imagine they look on their faces when they come in and see segregated sections of the ballpark. And you could go to jail for sitting in the wrong section of a ballpark or drinking from the wrong water fountain or using the wrong restroom. And as we both know, going to jail was some of the good things that happened. A lot of people lost their lives for breaking those simple societal standards. And so what we attempt to do here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is take segregation, complex subject matter, difficult for us as an adult to understand, no less our children, and try to simplify it by telling it through the eyes of these enormously talented black baseball players. But I think they too enjoy the stories that we share. And many of these stories, there's are stories that the late great Buck O'Neill shared with me firsthand. And I get to share them with a new generation of baseball players. And it never gets old. I bet. No, it doesn't. How about video? Have you found any video? Are there any, you know, uh, remaining videos out there? You know, there's probably some stuff sitting in somebody's attic or basement That's right what I'm saying. Now. You know, every now and then something surfaces, an artifact, uh, even a little video. Someone not too long ago found video of a guy named John Donaldson. And John Donaldson pitched for the Kansas City Monarchs, uh, and he's in that early era of black baseball, over 400 verifiable wins. Wow. Yeah. It's incredible. Yes. He was so good that J.L. Wilkinson, who owned the Kansas City Monarchs. Now, remind you, J.L. Wilkinson had Hall of Famers, Bullet Rogan, Hall of Famers, Satchel Paige, Hilton Smith, Andy Cooper, Jose Mendez, all Hall of Fame pitchers through the years with his Kansas City Monarchs. Yeah. He says John Donaldson is the, the greatest baseball pitcher he ever saw. Now, he was partisan to Donaldson because Donaldson made him a lot of money. Yes. Yeah, he was like a hired hand. But 400-plus verifiable wins, strikeout feats of 30-plus in multiple games, back-to-back, no-hitters, that kind of stuff. And so this guy, and the story has it, the guy had his wife ring. The diamond had fallen out the ring. He takes it to the shop. The guy going to fix the diamond in the ring. Well, the man in the store, the shop, loses his wife's ring. (laughs) (laughs) He trades an old video camera for it. Is that right? Uh Uh-huh. And now, the the video camera was eventually found under the man's bed. Now, I'm sure this was in the guest room because after he lost his wife's ring, he couldn't go back to the guest room. Right, right. And they happened to to take a look at (laughs) what was on the camera. Yeah. And it was 39 seconds of video of John Donaldson in action. Is that right? Great left-hand pitching. That's how it was found. That's incredible. Yeah, and so you know there's other stuff out there like that. And So somebody, go up in your attic, go up in your basement, see what you got, and we'd love to have it here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. You ever have people come through, Bob, that that you talk to and they say, I'm sorry, I'm embarrassed, you know, by the segregation of what what the country was. And as you, you pointed out beautifully, no more segregation, but still a lot of racism. Do you, yeah. do you get people that say, I'm, I'm sorry? Yeah, I, I think we, we, you get know what a, I mean? we get a little bit of that. But, you know, it's, it's not about guilt. 
you know, it's about learning yeah. and then learning from our mistakes. But for me, one of the greatest memories for me at the museum also involved a St. Louis guy, my dear friend, the great Ozzie Smith. And Ozzie was here for our grand opening of the new facility in 1997. And I never forget, as he walked through the museum and he ended up on the baseball field where the statues are, he said it was one of the most eeriest feelings he ever had in his life because he knew, understood, and embraced that he stood on the shoulders of those pioneers to be able to have the opportunity to pursue what became a Hall of Fame career, what became the wizard and how he became the wizard and one of the greatest to ever do it. It doesn't happen without those heroes of the Negro Leagues, and he understood that. And it it was very emotional for him. He's been coming back ever since. He's been coming back ever since. He's a dear friend of mine, dear friend of the Negro Leagues Museum. And, of course, like all of us, love the late, great Buck Mm O'Neill. Buck O'Neill, his involvement, how did that all start here? Well, I can tell you now, and I say this with no disrespect to anyone who had anything to do with this museum, it doesn't happen without Buck O'Neill. I call it the house that Buck built. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, in New York, they got the house that Roof built. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Here in Kansas City, we got the house that Buck built. And I, and I do, and I say that with no disrespect to anyone who had anything to do with the emergence and rise of this great museum, but it does not happen without Buck O'Neill. Buck O'Neill spent the last 16 years of his life out there preaching the gospel of the Negro Leagues and the virtues of his museum to any and everyone who would listen. It was a crusade, and it drove him. It really did. It drove him, and I think that's why he lived such a fulfilled life. Now, Buck was always the consummate glass-half-full kind of personality. Anyway, that's who he was. Sure. But to build this museum and to make sure that America's unsung baseball heroes would never be forgotten. I think it carried him over the last 16 years of his life. Sure. It motivated. It was, it gave it was him, unbelievable. Yeah, it gave him reason to get up every single day. He didn't get paid to do this. It was 100% voluntary, and, and he loved it. Yeah, and people still come here and say, oh, I, I came here and – Buck was just here sitting there and he took me through on a tour of the museum and he signed this for me and he took pictures with us. That was Buck. Yeah. Does Major League Baseball contact you guys about the past? Hey, are we missing this player or do you have something with this player? Should he be in the Hall of Fame? Veterans committee, you know, those kind of things. Do you get those calls? You know, we still get inquiries about certain guys, particularly when certain events take place and more and more Major League teams are are doing – I think, uh, increased effort to help educate their fan base about the history of the Negro Leagues. Because as you well know, no sport holds to its history the way baseball does. That's right. Now, it's that one sport where we constantly and consistently compare the stars of the past with today's stars. Un- unequivocally, the two greatest living Major League Baseball players today, Hank Aaron and Willie Mays, sure, both sure. come out of the Negro Leagues. So if you had doubt about the talent that was there in the Negro Leagues, you should not have to have any doubt when you start talking about, again, Hank Aaron and Willie Mays coming out. And most people had no idea that those two legendary baseball players come out of the Negro Leagues. 
Henry Aaron with the Indianapolis Clowns, Willie Mays with the Birmingham Black Barons. And then you start talking about Ernie Banks, Roy Campanella. You know, the list just goes on and on. And so it's hard to imagine our game without those great stars. But if you can imagine what this game was like before 1947, you may not have had Hank Aaron and Willie Mays in the major leagues. Yeah. And, And that talent didn't get better. After 1947, they were playing great baseball Absolutely. well before 1947. So there's no question, had the doors open sooner, the record books would be entirely different. How often do you get asked to speak about this? All the time. And I enjoy it. You I love really it. do. And, 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 and what I'm finding is that that is increasing. People have an interest. But, you know, I've always believed that I don't think there was ever a time when people didn't want to know about the Negro Leagues. They just had no way to know about the Negro That's right. Yeah, it's not in the pages of American history books. And so countless generations of us have gone through our own formal educations without knowing, again, one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball history, but in American history. And so as we've made this story more readily available, the interest in it continues to grow, and it puts a little bit more demand on us to provide access, even greater access to this story. And so while we want everybody to come to Kansas City, we realized that that's not going to happen. And so we started building traveling exhibitions and so that we could take this story out on the road and give people an opportunity to be introduced to it. We hope that we whet your appetite to the point that you do want to come to Kansas City and experience this firsthand. But we did not want to leave this story isolated in Kansas City. It's too powerful, too compelling, too meaningful to leave here just hoping that people will make their way to Kansas City. Final question. How do people uh, get involved with the museum? Donations, I'm absolutely. sure. You absolutely. Know, what's the best and, way and to we do it? We need the support. We're 501c3 not-for-profit organization, so any contribution is tax-deductible. We encourage you to become a member of our organization. And I don't know if there's any greater way to support a not-for-profit organization of this nature than when you become a member of that organization and say, I'm going to make a pledge each and every year to do a little something to make sure that this story doesn't die. And, and, and essentially, you become a stakeholder. Yeah, you become a stakeholder sure. in this organization. And we have members from around the world. Some of them may never step foot in this museum, but they know how important it is that the legacy of the Negro League plays on. And so if you are so inclined and you would like to learn more about financial support of our organization, please log on to www.nlbm.com. There are all kinds of ways in which you can can make a contribution. You become a member of the organization, and, and certainly we cert- appreciate those considerations and support. That's the great Bob Kendrick, and can't say thank you enough to Bob for his time here on 101 ESPN. Make the drive to Kansas City. Log on to the website. Make a donation. Find out more. Educate yourself. Educate your kids It's one of the great places in our country, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Back with more on 101 ESPN. More of the Cardinals talk you know and love. This is the Redbird Report with Danny Mac on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Jim Butler Kia. It was a fascinating conversation with Bob Kendrick of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. And now let's shift uh, to Brad Thompson, who was a guest this morning on Scoops with Danny Mack, which is heard daily from 10 to 11 right here on 101 ESPN. One of the questions I posed to Brad in our conversation was about not having fans in the stands and just trying to, on a nightly basis, if you're a player, 
get used to that um, and trying to to have self-motivation. What that is going to be like for the players, day in, day out, night after night, getting used to that competition and getting used to not having fans in the stands. Well, I really do think, first of all, everybody being on a level playing field, that helps. Everybody has to deal with the same thing. So I don't think that there's going to be one club that's going to be an advantage, uh, one club that's going to be at a disadvantage. And I do believe that as soon as you see another uniform out there, and that's why I am kind of excited that the Cardinals and the Royals are trying to get something going, get a preseason game in before the regular season starts. I really think that once you get that, things will snap in for you and you'll realize that the stuff is real. I pumped in crowd noise for the players to hear. Look, it's, you can see, you can look around. None of it is there. The music, I think, would be fine. I mean, they, they run that through NBA games. You got sure. to going the whole time. Maybe, uh, maybe a home team picks a playlist and you just run it through there. I wouldn't have any problem with that. And maybe it would liven things up a little bit. Heck, you know, maybe you'd even get a chance to see a little bit more personality from some of the players. I think it was uh, Anibal Sanchez that I saw the other day. They had music on. He was dancing out to the mound, you know, before he he got his thing going. I'd be okay with that one. I don't love the crowd noise. But as far as the competition goes, it's going to be different for everybody. But I I truly believe when the pitcher steps on the mound and when a hitter digs into the box – you know it's real. I mean, you know everything that you had to do also to get to that point, all of the protocols, all of the, the leaps and bounds, all the hurdles, all the decisions. I think that'll lock people in quickly. In terms of the roster right now, if you're um, the Cardinals or, or really any team in baseball, uh, how are you approaching this, Brad, with, with pitching? How, how do you think you have to approach it and how careful you have to be? Because it's it's not just dealing with tender elbows and shoulders and arms and that kind of thing but you got to worry about you know if you have to quarantine a guy and how much um you got to be protected in your bullpen and those kind of things what what do you think you're doing in terms of of trying to just make sure you're protected with your roster and your arms well i, I want to make sure that i have innings in the pen which i know sounds sounds stupid because oh you have you have bodies you have innings but i want to have multiple guys that can go multiple innings I, I think that that is really important if i was building a bullpen right now because not everybody stretched out the same. Look, Wayno is stretched way out. I know he threw 75 pitches in, in a, a sim game the other day. It looks like Kim is stretched out pretty well. And Carlos, who you and I had the conversation about last week, um, I don't know where he's going to fit yet, whether it be in the pan or in the rotation, but he was stretched out to 95 pitches in the Dominican Republic. Like It's nice to be able uh, to have that length, but not every team is going to have that. So for me, guys like Daniel Ponce de Leon, and Gomber, and Henesis Cabrera, if in fact he ends up being a part of the mix uh, because he just got uh, his second positive COVID test, so we'll see what happens with him. But those types of players, to me, are instrumental in what you're trying to do. And Johan Oviedo might end up being one of those guys that can lengthen you out in the bullpen a little bit. I want to be covered that way. I don't know what the specific number is, Dan. I don't know if it's 16 pitchers, 14 position players, Uh, I I was trying to go through a list earlier today, and honestly, it was getting more and more difficult for me to come up with an entire pitching staff with all the question marks that the Cardinals have right now. Hicks isn't going to be available until mid-August. We don't know the situation with Giovanni Gallegos. Don't even believe he's he's in the country at this point. Reyes is in town, but he hasn't been practicing. We got no Brevia this year, and I mentioned Cabrera already. Look, there's a lot of opportunity at the back end. I don't know how they're going to figure that part of it out, but that's why these games 
this week, uh, week and a half, two weeks leading up to opening day, it's important for all these these young arms down in the bullpen to see how well they can show out. Being a, a pitcher, Brad, um, shed some light on this for our, our listeners. Um, I think it's fascinating during the quarantine what certain guys had access to and, and what they were able to do. So if you're trying to stay in shape as a pitcher and you did not have access to, let's say, the facility down in Jupiter or wherever these ball players had a chance to go, you know, their spring training facilities because yeah. they were shut down. Um, and for some, I mean, it's just crazy to even say this, but you couldn't even go to a park, you know, because public facilities were shut down. It's crazy to say that, isn't it? I mean, it's just nuts, but how are guys or, and, and as a pitcher, how are you able then as a pitcher to stay sharp? What do you do with long toss? How do you get on a mound? What do you do if you're not facing live batters? So then if you're Gallegos and if you're Henesis Cabrera, how long does it take you then to get back and ready in game shape and have that chance in a general, and maybe not specifically with those guys, but how long does it take you, right. you know, to get back in game shape and be ready to go at a major league level? Yeah, everybody's different. I mean, you know, Dan, there are some guys that can just pick up a ball, wing it a couple of times and say they're good to go. There are others that need to build up to it. Uh, but but the overall idea of, hey, you're quarantined, you you have access to what you have access it's crazy. to. It's it, it crazy. It's creativity, right? And Derek Gould had a great write-up on Johan Oviedo at the Post-Dispatch, and I encourage people to check that one out because it was really good. But uh, he went back to Cuba and he worked out on his roof. His dad put up a uh, put up a, like a carpet that he could throw into, so he didn't wear out the neighbor's house. And <laughs> like that's what he did. Like you have to be so creative. I've had this uh, happen in the past, just with, with multiple off days and being on the road. I was always the guy that had to kind of throw every single day to keep myself going. And I would take the mattress in the hotel room and I would flip it up against the wall and I would throw that way. And just it's it's doing something and. Uh, you know, uh, I, I didn't throw hard enough to hurt a mattress, so <laughs> so that was good. That, that helped me out a little bit. But you just have to be so creative. But the one thing you can't do is remain stagnant. Look, even if you don't have access to playing long toss, you can't sit around and just play Xbox all day. Like, you got to figure out ways to keep your body moving, to do workouts. And these guys are pros. They know what's on the line. They're going to be, be doing stuff, but you got to be creative. That's my broadcast partner, Brad Thompson. This has been the Redbird Report. And, of course, Brad is on the fast lane every day right here on 101 ESPN. If you didn't know, we have the Redbird Report, and that is every Monday at 6 right here on 101 ESPN. Thanks for being with us. I'll talk to you tomorrow at 10 on Scoops with Danny Mac. That was the Danny Mac Report on 101 ESPN, brought to you by Jim Butler, the Kia powerhouse. Shop JimButlerKia.com.